Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher, as ever. Excited to be here today with uh, a return guest, I would say a friend of The Beagle, Kieran Musanuru. Uh, Kieran is a, a cardiologist and a professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also one of the co-founders and a senior scientific advisor at Verve Therapeutics. Is it Verve Therapeutics, Karen? Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah, Verve Therapeutics, uh, a very interesting company that um, I've been keeping my eye on. Clearly, a lot of people have been keeping their eye on, uh, judged by the success of their recent IPO. Verve, their central mission is to develop a form of gene therapy that unlike virtually any other form of gene therapy that I know, the goal is not to cure an existing disease, but disease prevention. And I think maybe even more fundamentally, whereas the great majority of gene therapies look to treat very rare diseases that are have great impact but affect few people, Verve is looking at heart disease, which is obviously quite common and affects many people, so this could be ultimately of interest to a very broad population. So it's really an extremely interesting company to keep an eye on. So welcome, Kieran. Thanks, Laura. Great to be um, back on. Yeah. So why don't you tell our listeners something about what Verve is aiming to do and how it's different from other gene therapy efforts? Certainly. So Verve Therapeutics is in part building upon work from my own laboratory going back almost a decade now, as, as you know, Laura, um, with the idea of using gene editing to turn off genes related to blood cholesterol levels, triglyceride levels, which, of course, are causal risk factors for cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death worldwide last year over the 12-month period. On the order of about 18 million people died of cardiovascular disease and its related complications. So, you know, put to put that in perspective, all the attention in recent times properly has been on COVID-19. Uh, but over that same time period, about 12 months, we've had about 3 million people die of the disease. But, you know, cardiovascular disease, 18 million people. It's still by far and away the leading cause of death worldwide. And that's true in the United States. It's true um, in the poorest countries on earth. It's true for men. It's true for women. It's true for minorities as well as non-minorities. So it really cuts across all groups, all nations, um, everyone. This is a problem that we need to be concerned with. Um, and I've compared it in the past or talked about it in the past as being the preeminent global health threat of the 21st century because as I said, it cuts across all communities, affects and has become the leading cause of death, even in the poorest country, countries, nations on earth, um, even though a lot of people uh, don't appreciate that that transition happened um, sometime over the last 10 to 15 years. Wow. So it's it's being the leading cause of death. We desperately need ways to tackle it. And, it, you know, as the way things are now, it's just going up and up and up. We've become very successful at treating aspects of the disease. Uh, if someone comes in with a heart attack, assuming they don't die at home or wherever they are, drop dead from a heart attack or die in their sleep, if they come to the hospital, if they come to, to recognition that they're having a heart attack, 
then we have some good ways of treating the acute heart attack. We can use balloons and stents and all sorts of fancy technology to open up the coronary arteries whose blockages are what are responsible for the heart attacks. Um, so we can treat it reasonably well in the acute setting. It used to be that if you had a heart attack and you got to the hospital, your chance of dying was about 50%, and now it's only a few percent. So we've made great progress over the last 50 years or so. Um, but a lot of people you know, still die from heart attacks. And if you don't make it to the hospital, the reason you're not making it to the hospital is because you know, you've died in your sleep or you've just collapsed and just didn't get medical attention in time or didn't have someone around to realize that you had the heart attack and, and, and collapsed and, um, you know, needed help. Um, and so that being the case, uh, we need to do better. And one important thing to recognize, it, it's not a binary thing where you we have a heart attack out of the, uh, it, it is a chronic disease process, right? So we're exposed to risk factors like cholesterol for the entirety of our lifetimes. But it takes time to have enough exposure um, such that you have enough of this buildup of plaque in your coronary arteries so that they get uh, vulnerable, as we say, enough that they actually rupture and cause big clots to form in the coronary arteries and block the blood flow to the heart muscle and cause heart muscle to die. That's what a heart attack is. Um, but it builds on decades of exposure to cholesterol and building up of these. And so if we had a way to slow down or even prevent the buildup of these plaques, you would be preventing heart attacks that happen, you know, decades in the future. So that that's really the goal of the work I've been doing in the lab, to use gene editing, to turn off cholesterol genes. The idea being that if you can turn, turn off the spigot, um, then you reduce the amount of exposure a person has over a very prolonged period of time, over many years, to the effects of cholesterol, and that would translate into less development of plaques in the arteries and then less risk of one of those plaques rupturing and less risk of getting a heart attack. Right. It, uh, so I, I think there's a lot of ways in which the company is a very 21st century, you know, sort of like this is what we were thinking about when we started the Human Genome Project idea. And the, maybe the first one yeah. is that what we found is there are people that naturally don't have high cholesterol levels, right? Is that so that that's, exactly. that's where this starts? Yeah. So there are people who have been come to a recognition um, since the, the Human Genome Project was, quote unquote, completed, um, of course, it seems like, you know, every month we hear a new report about how the Human Genome Project has finally been completed, which just tells you it's a perennial <laughs> work in progress. But the first time it was completed, uh, you know, was something, you know, like 20 years ago. Uh, I saw it. It's evergreen. It's yeah. evergreen. The announcement that the Human Genome Project is finished is, is evergreen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but we first declared victory, you know, about 20 years ago. And, you know, it wasn't really complete, but it was our first extensive look at the genome. And since that time, we've been able to identify people who have cholesterol genes uh, naturally turned off, partway turned off, or even fully turned off. And one such gene uh, that came to attention around 2006, a gene called PCSK9, uh, whose role, whose function is to boost cholesterol levels in the blood and ensure there's a good cholesterol supply to all the organs in the body. It's its role. That's why it evolved hundreds of millions of years ago. And this PCSK9 gene, it turns out about 3% of the general population have that gene partially turned off. And what's exciting about that is that 
they clearly are protected from heart attack. They have a much lower risk of heart attack compared to the average person who does not have this gene partially turned off. And yet they don't seem to have any adverse consequences. There's no downside that we can really tell to having the gene partly turned off or even fully turned off. Which is amazing, actually, because that's not the norm. I just want to say, yeah, most usually, usually things have a balance, right? That's Exactly. And the right, you know, you can have some fun speculating, you know, why it is we even have this gene if it's not critical to to our healthy lives. Uh, you know, and the rationale is, you know, at when the gene evolved, as I said, it was hundreds, millions of years ago, you know, for most of history, evolutionary history, it's been a feast and famine situation. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does become Goldilocks. You know, if you're in a, in a feast situation, you don't want to overdo it, have too much cholesterol. But if you're in a famine situation, you don't want to have too little cholesterol in the body. You don't want to have too little cholesterol in the bloodstream, getting to all the organs that need cholesterol. And we do need cholesterol. Every cell needs cholesterol to, to remain intact and to function properly. Um, and so you have a yin and yang. And so you have genes that push it down in times of feast. And you have genes that push it up in times of famine, and PCSK9 is one of those genes that pushes it up. That's why, presumably, you know, many, many, many forms of life, many species, all of our, you know, relatives, um, going back hundreds of years, as I said, have this gene. It's why we have the gene. But of course, in our in current last, context, exactly, in in our fast food nation, exactly. you know, culture in which we live, it's not helping us. No, no, like none of us are at risk of having too little cholesterol in our diet. So um, it, it's become a redundant gene. And so it, it becomes a gene that we can view as a very compelling therapeutic target because we know that turning it off won't cause us any harm. And so that's the rationale. And over the last 15 years, since this gene has come to recognition, there have been a variety of therapies um, either approved for use in patients now as of the last few years or other therapies that's um and there are, there are some problem. there are some some existing not permanent therapies not gene therapies but therapies that that knock that gene back right that they've just exactly. come up in the last couple of years yeah exactly so exactly you know what what i what i was referring to so there are a couple of approved drugs um, in the united states and, and elsewhere that are antibody drugs and so pcsk9 it's a gene that's predominantly in the liver the protein is made mostly in the liver but it's secreted into the bloodstream and the bloodstream is where it has its effects of increasing cholesterol levels. And so if you inject an antibody drug into the bloodstream, it can bind to the protein and essentially clear it out of the bloodstream, prevent it from increasing cholesterol, which has the effect of reducing cholesterol. And it worked quite well. It can reduce cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, the bad form of cholesterol by you know, up to 60%. And uh, it's been shown in clinical trials to actually reduce the risk of heart attack. So all very good thing. But there's a big downside. It doesn't last for very long. So you inject the antibody, it gets into the bloodstream, has its effects, but only lasts a few weeks. Mm. Which means you have to keep injecting it every few weeks. And this is a chronic disease process, as I alluded to earlier. This isn't something where, you know, you take, you know, you, you don't have to worry about it until you have the heart attack and then you start getting treated. No, that's not the way it works. If you really want the full protective effect, you've got to be lowering cholesterol for a prolonged period of time, hopefully before you get the heart attack. But certainly so once does, you get the heart attack. It doesn't help me, Kieran, it doesn't help me if I just like shoot up the drug and then like eat a few cheeseburgers like for a couple of weeks. No, no, no. Oh, <laughs> if only it worked that way. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, 
it's got it's got to be something that you're committed to. So the patients who are on this drug, the the intent is that they're on this drug for the rest of their lifetime. So mm-hmm. that means injections of of an antibody drug every few weeks for the rest of one's lifetime. And you know that's a big burden to put on patients. That's not an easy thing, right? And you know particularly in a country what like the United States where we of course have structural issues with our with our healthcare system and um, you know there's issues of access to care um, as you might expect. Wait, wait. Uh, we have issues with our healthcare system. <laughs> right? Who knew? <laughs> I no. said, so, my God, uh, we're breaking news here on the Beagle Tape. And, and and so, unlike other uh, unlike other changes that might that that could involve needing to substitute one version of a gene for another, what you're looking to do here is to simply knock out a yeah. functioning gene, exactly. which is a simpler target, right? So that's a simpler that's right. target. That's um, right. And you use the version of CRISPR that's base editing, so you don't have to, which is to say, I, I, that's that's right, right? This uses base editing, so you mm-hmm. you don't have to um, actually cut. That's the right. Genome. Yeah. That's right. So so you know CRISPR one version 1.0, if you want to think of it that way, that was first uh, reported and then came to everyone's attention in, in 2013. It's like scissors, exactly like you said. It cuts DNA. And the premise there is if you have a gene like PCSK9, if you can get CRISPR into the liver where PCSK9 is made um, and snip through the PCSK9 gene, well, obviously, you know, the cell doesn't like having broken pieces of DNA around, so it tries to repair it. But that's an error-prone process, a little bit sloppy. So, you know, the way I like to think of it is, you know, if you tear a page in a book, and then you try to, you know, tape it back up. Often it's totally fine, and what what you tore through is legible. Um, but if you know it was a really bad tear, and the edges are frayed, and you try to match them up and tape it up, sometimes it doesn't quite work, and you lose some letters, you obscure some words, and you might lose the meaning. And that's actually what you want to happen when you're yeah, using. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I was gonna say if it's legible, you haven't done anything, right? Yeah. Like you want it, yeah. Yeah. So the idea is to cut and then have the cell mess up the repair, not be able to repair it quite properly. And then you've disrupted the gene because now there are errors in the gene and right. then it doesn't work anymore. And so it's but, crude, but it can be very effective. Now, base editing, as you mentioned, that's more like version 2.0. It's much more subtle. It, you know, I think of it as, as like, a, you know, more like a typewriter. Some people call it a pencil and eraser. Um, I guess if I'm talking about a typewriter, then I'm, I'm sort of dating myself here. But, you know, I think of old school typewriters that have eraser ribbons. So if you make a mistake, you can go back and type on the eraser ribbon and get rid of a letter. I go back to whiteout. I don't know. Like oh, whiteout, yeah. Small percentage of the audience is going to sure. be. That's what base editing is. It's just a little whiteout. They're like, oh, we're yeah, just going to put something. Good. I like that. I like that. You know, use whiteout, blot out a letter, erase it, and then put the correct letter back in. Now it's not quite that simple, but you know, you know, to a close approximation, that's effectively what you're doing. You're replacing one letter without another, uh, with another, um, without having to make a cut in the DNA, without having to make a double strand break, and so. On that basis, the feeling is that it's, it's a more precise, it's a more elegant, and, and probably a safer approach. All right. And you you said a minute ago, and I, <laughs> I think this is like um, there's where, where there's some very new news, very exciting news is is you get that into the liver. So yeah, there. But uh, I think sometimes people uh, overlook the fact that uh, yes. CRISPR in all of its forms, the full Swiss army knife of CRISPR applications is a fantastic set of tools for gene editing. 
-hmm. but we still have had the same issues of delivery of getting the changes to the right cells in such a fashion uh, that they don't disrupt anything else. Uh, But that's also an area where there's been a huge amount of improvement and some very exciting recent discoveries. I I put this out. Lipid nanoparticles. Are they the molecule of the year or what? The molecule of the year and and quite probably the decade when it comes to to new genetic therapies um, and other types of therapies, as we've seen this past year with the COVID-19 yeah, vaccine. Exactly right. Like yeah. the lipid nanoparticles. Yeah. Like it's like end of the year award ceremony. I want to see the Oscars giving out a special award to lipid nanoparticles. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so and now I've given this big intro, Kieran, you have to help me by in- explaining to people what yeah. the lipid particles are and how they get your the, the changes into the liver. Sure. So it's important to, to, to understand that it's not just the lipid nanoparticles. That's like, you know, one half of it. The other half is what is now widely known as mRNA, really known to, to the general population as mRNA, mRNA vaccines, right? The COVID-19 vaccines from, uh, from Pfizer, BioNTech and uh, Moderna that at least in the United States, virtually, or if not virtually everyone, the vast majority of people received. And mRNA stands, of course, for messenger RNA. And the idea is that you have messenger RNA wrapped in this collection of lipids, a mix of uh, different lipids that come together to form these fatty spheres. And in the middle of these fatty spheres, once you pack them in, are messenger RNA molecules. And then the idea is that you can take these fatty spheres and inject them into the bloodstream or infuse them into the bloodstream is probably a better way to say them um, because you're putting quite a lot of these spheres into the bloodstream. And the hope is that these spheres will go where you want them to go, the, or- the organ where you want editing to happen. Now, let me take, take a step back and say, well, it's not always editing that you want to happen. With the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19, you don't actually inject into the bloodstream. It doesn't need to go in the bloodstream, as you all know. You get the jab in your arm, right? Um, And so you're injecting into the muscle. And the intent there is you don't want it to go through the entire body. You actually want it to stay local. And these lipid nanoparticles get taken up um, by macrophages and other cells that like to, you know, eat up stuff that isn't normally there. And once the lipid nanoparticle gets into the cells, it releases its cargo, which in this case is a messenger RNA that encodes the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And that messenger RNA, as with all messenger RNAs that are normally made by cells that are transcribed from genes in the genome, they'll get translated into the spike protein. And then the spike protein gets released, and being a foreign protein, it will induce a strong immune response. And so any of you who have taken the COVID-19 vaccine particularly the mRNA vaccine, if you didn't feel it the first shot you got, you certainly, almost certainly, felt something the second time you got the shot. Oh, my God, it knocked me on my ass. Yes. Same here. I actually felt that both times. It was was great. Um, But it was nice also because you knew that that meant it was working. Yeah. And so it it was all by this elegant technology. Take the messenger RNA, put in these fatty spheres, you inject it into the muscle while it's in there and this among, amongst the muscle cells, it gets taken up by other cells, macrophages, and they become essentially little factories to start pumping out spike protein. And then you get a good 
good, nice, strong immune response. And because it's RNA, you're actually not changing DNA at all. It's not really gene therapy in any way, shape, or form. Right. It, messenger RNA doesn't last very long. It's a, it's a transient, short-lived molecule. You have a burst of protein production, and then the messenger RNA breaks down and is gone forever. And the protein breaks down and is gone forever. That's yeah. Is and that P- you- PSA on that, PSA on that, because I've had people ask me about, like, how did they have this so fast? I mean, I think there were there were a lot of those kind of I'm uncomfortable about the the vaccine because it was so fast. Uh, these these particles weren't and the mRNA technique they weren't developed just for, they 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 were they just it was a case I think of the technology being developed for other purposes and just waiting in the wings and finding its moment right so like that's why it came fast. And, and in fact, although you know you never hear about them, it was originally used for other vaccines for other and much rarer infectious diseases, very obscure things that none of us have heard of unless you're an infectious disease specialist. I'm um, actually in clinical trials, um, but you know, you know, it's better to be lucky than than be good, um, as is often said. And you know, we were lucky that this technology had matured enough that it was just ready to go when we got hit with a global pandemic. And in less than a year, actually had a fully fledged, um, fledged out therapy um, that was able to go through clinical trials very rapidly, be validated in clinical trials, turn out to work extremely well, um, and then were able to be deployed widely to the the general population. Um, right. Very timing. So, very so fortuitous. for your purposes, yeah. using the same type of nanoparticle, how does it get to the liver? Do you inject it directly into the liver? No, so that you could do that, but that would be very challenging. So the liver has the advantage that its job is to clean things out of the bloodstream and then metabolize them, and then you know, hopefully, if if it's you know something that's toxic, it'll take that toxic chemical and and metabolize it into something that's not toxic, and then you'll be able to clear that from the body. Um, and so that's its job, and it's a very big organ. It's one of the largest organs in the body, um, and the, all the blood. You know, very quickly, you know, if you have something in the blood, you know, within a few minutes, no matter where it goes in the body, it will eventually circulate around and go through the liver. It doesn't really have much of a choice. And that, that's what the liver does. It, it's continuously, if you will, monitoring the blood and and, and snatching things out of the blood and, um, you know, cleaning it up. And so if I were to take some lipid nanoparticles and inject them into your bloodstream, within a few minutes, all of those particles will pass through the liver and the liver cells, hepatocytes, will grab them all up and then internalize them. And then once the particles are in the liver cells, they'll release their cargo. Now, what gene editing companies like Verve Therapeutics, another company called Intellia Therapeutics, um, what a lot of academic investigators um, have, have been able to do is use these lipid nanoparticles to encode or to, I should say, um, let me put that another way, lipid nanoparticles to package messenger RNA that encodes uh, a gene editor like CRISPR. And uh, for those of you very familiar with with gene editing and with CRISPR, you'll know there are actually two RNA components that are involved here. There's a messenger RNA that actually makes the editing protein, the Cas protein, if you're talking about CRISPR. And then there's a guide RNA, that's the sort of GPS molecule, that in conjunction with the protein takes the protein to where you want in the genome. And so you need both components. So the messenger RNA will, once in the cells, will produce 
the cast protein, the actual editor protein that either acts as a scissors or acts as a pencil and eraser or acts as a typewriter or whatever metaphor you want to use. And then you also have that guide RNA, which is just the second RNA molecule. They'll both get into the liver cells with high efficiency. If you do this right, if you have the right lipid nanoparticles and good quality messenger RNA, good quality guide RNA, then inject it into the bloodstream. It'll get taken up by the liver without you really having to do much of anything because that's what the liver likes to do. It'll get into the liver cells. And then once there, the messenger RNA will start pumping out the editing protein. That editing protein will snatch on to the guide RNA. You'll form the full machine, if you will. It'll start scanning the entire DNA content of a cell, the genome, until it finds what it's looking for. And if the guide RNA, the GPS, is tuned to look for the PCSK9 gene, then the editor will find the PCSK9 gene and then make the changes there with the goal of turning it off. And you can target it to really any gene in the genome you want. Um, and so we've, we've reached the point where if you want to get editing done with any gene that's in the liver for some therapeutic purpose, it's now been shown to be possible not only in mice, that was first done actually quite a few years ago, for the first time in my lab, actually, in 2014, and then many other labs afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and then more recently in non-human primates, as shown by Verve Therapeutics and Intellia Therapeutics and some academic investigators as well. And then uh, most recently in human beings in a clinical trial from Intellia Therapeutics. Yes, and I want to get to that, but at least set up the drama here. So Verve IPOs. Yes, does very well, raises a ton of money, and like what? A week later, there is an announcement about the use in humans, sort of uh, an investigation that essentially does a proof in principle experiment for you of doing this in humans. Yep. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah. That is exactly right. And, and totally fortuitous timing. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that was not, that was not <laughs> deliberate or planned. And no one knew exactly what was coming when. And nobody knew if Intellia's clinical trial was even going to work. No. And, and I have to say, it happened. I was thinking like, oh, I'm a big fan. Like, I'm very interested in technology. I should buy some of this stock. And today, I do not need to give anybody a conflict of interest warning because I'm too slow. And didn't get around to it. And then this, 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 I'm going to have you give the details of what happened, but this, this big announcement. And I'm like, well, I should clearly have bought this before that happened. <laughs> so the plus today is that I have no conflict of interest in Verve Therapeutics whatsoever. But why don't you explain what the amyloidosis experiment was? Yeah, it's yeah. exciting so, in and of itself. Very exciting yeah. news. So, so conceptually, it's very similar to what we've been talking about, the work that came out of my laboratory and that was being pursued by Verve Therapeutics to turn off cholesterol genes in the liver. Um, but this is a different disease that Intellia Therapeutics has been tackling called transthyretin or TTR amyloidosis. It's, it has an obscure sounding name and that's because it has been obscure, but it's actually, it might not turn out to be that uncommon a disease. It turns out that many cases of heart failure and heart failure is a pretty common disease, not as common as, as heart attack, um, but um, pretty common. Uh, many of those cases might turn out to be because of this, this condition called amyloidosis. So here's how it, how it works. There's a protein called transthyretin, that's what we call TTR. And like PCSK9, it's made in the liver, mostly made in the liver. Uh, the protein's produced there and secreted into the bloodstream. Now, 
transthyrene or TTRs normal role in the bloodstream is to carry around vitamins, vitamin A being a big one, um, hormones like thyroid hormone. And so that's its role. It's, it's kind of like a shuttle grabs onto these vitamins, these hormones, and, you know, Jake takes them around the bloodstream, around the body to where they need to be. And that's good. Um, but it turns out that's not essential. If you get rid of this transthyretin, if you're, if you're not careful, you might become vitamin A deficient, but you can compensate for that by taking, you know, large doses of vitamin A. You know, you might get a little bit less thyroid function. You can monitor that and so forth. Um, so it's a lot like PCSK9 <clears throat> in the sense that, you know, it evolved for very good reasons, but in modern day conditions, you probably don't really need it. And not having it probably doesn't really have any meaningful adverse consequences. Um, now, why why is it good that you can turn it off? Well, there are certain people in whom it causes problems. Now, normally when it's secreted into the bloodstream, it doesn't just float around as a solo protein. It likes to form up into collections of four proteins, the aggregates, what's called, what we call tetramers. And it's that tetramer, that group of that can actually grab onto vitamins, grab onto hormones and take it around. So that's the normal form. But it turns out that transthyretin can become unfolded. And when it's unfolded, it doesn't form up in these nice tetramers. It falls apart. We don't have these nice uh, functional protein complexes anymore. And these unfolded proteins, when they're in their bare single form, solo form, what we call monomeric forms, um, depending on how badly they're misfolded, they can actually start packing with each other in different ways, in ways that are not intended, and form basically these these plaques or these fibrils or these aggregates, whatever you want to call Fatbergs. Like they had in the London. Like that. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> like fatbergs. Yeah, they just they they just glom onto each other and form these big large aggregates um, that have you know hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. I don't even know how many. You know, many, 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 many things just glomming on together. Fatbergs is a very good way to describe it. And that shouldn't be there. Now, in the blood, they don't really cause a problem. They're floating around, but they're not really cause a problem. The way they cause problems is when they become lodged in certain organs. And the two main organs that are affected by these, these TTR aggregates, these abnormal aggregates, are one, nerves. And so you can get very bad uh, neuropathy um, that can really inhibit one's quality of life and in very extreme circumstances uh, be fatal. Um, and But the more worrisome and the one the more worrisome organ that where it causes problems is the heart. And so you get a lot of these aggregates depositing in the heart, gumming up the heart muscle. And when that happens, the heart doesn't like that. And um, it becomes very thick, becomes non-functional. You get heart failure. And, um, you know, the life expectancy, once you've actually developed heart failure from this amyloidosis, is actually really dismal. You're talking just a few years. Um, and we had no way to treat this you know more than about 10 years ago we had absolutely no way to treat this except with a with a heart transplant um which obviously is not an easy thing to come by and uh, and also if you did the heart transplant but you still had the amyloidosis yeah so so you remember, then so just exactly. damage the next heart yeah so the, the heart is 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 what's suffering the consequences but the liver is what's what's guilty here right? the liver is pumping out this protein right Right. You're punishing the heart. heart actually, yeah, exactly. You should be punishing you're, you're, the liver. You're exactly the right. You're yeah. exactly right. So if you do a heart transplant, the liver is still pumping out this bad protein. Um, and, and what has 
often seen in patients who get heart transplants only is that the heart starts to, to, to fail again after a few years. And so what you really need to do is you need to do a heart transplant along with a liver transplant. So the liver is no longer causing problems. Now, there's a bit of complexity here. I'm glossing over some details. It turns out that there are two different ways where you can get this misfolded protein. Um, if you have a mutation in the gene, if you're born with a mutation, um, the mutation can cause the misfolding. And as you might imagine, it causes a much worse form of the disease in the sense that the misfolding happens earlier in life. Um, you get these, these aggregates causing problems in the heart or the nerves or both earlier in life. So we're talking like the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. It still takes time for all this to happen, but you know, you're middle age and then you get this bad disease. Um, but there is another form um, that goes by the, the sort of interesting name of senile amyloidosis. And the reason it's called senile is it shows up at a much older age, in more like the 70s or 80s. Um, and that actually turns out to be the normal protein. It's not a mutated protein. It's actually the normal protein that just, you know, over time, enough of it becomes misfolded and causes enough aggregates that over time, many decades, it builds up and then causes problems. Why now, isn't there anything that just gets better over time? Right. Like it's so unfair. There should be like one or two things to be like, oh, everything else in my body is breaking, but my eyes are better than ever. I'm like, yeah, this is don't, not don't, yeah, don't don't we all wish. I mean, some some yeah. would say that, you know, we grow in wisdom over time. Uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt, I suppose. But <laughs> <laughs> they don't call it senile amyloidosis for nothing. Karen. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it doesn't actually affect the brain. So senile, you know, it's not how we typically think of senile. It's just senile is a word that means old. Yeah, um, not that's sure what I mean. That was kind yeah, of that sure was kind of my lack. point. I'm not sure. So the, the, reason, the, the researchers involved were, were were treating this in much the same way as you're talking about. So so regardless of whether you have a mutant protein that's causing you know disease earlier in life or whether you have a, a you have normal protein but you know you live long enough and you know bad things to happen as you said and you get this more senile amyloid doses from, from the normal protein, just, um, you know, not working like it should be. Um, in either case, there is a single strategy that it, that has been shown to be effective, and that's simply turning off production of the TTR gene, or more properly speaking, production of the TTR protein from the TTR gene mm-hmm. in the liver cells. And we already know that if you, you know, get rid of TTR, there, there aren't really any bad consequences, or there are some consequences like vitamin deficiency, you can manage them pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of the goal and the strategy is the same, turn off the gene that's causing the problem in the liver. And so you can use the same approach. Um, you can use a lipid nanoparticle mm-hmm. surrounding a messenger RNA encoding CRISPR, along with a guide RNA, but that guide RNA is now going to be like a GPS module that's going to point CRISPR to the TTR gene in the liver cells. So you inject the LNPs into the bloodstream, gets taken up by the liver, and so now in all the liver cells, CRISPR starts doing its thing. It starts targeting the TTR gene, disrupting the gene, turning it off and activating whatever terminology you want to use. But the outcome is the same. You're basically making much, much, much less transthyretin protein, TTR protein, which means less of it is ending up in the bloodstream which means there's less around to form these aggregates. So in principle, you would halt the disease. And there's even some evidence that you might be able to, if the treatment is aggressive enough, reverse the disease. Mm-hmm. That the aggregates that are in the heart muscle or in the nerves or wherever um, will start to clear out naturally over time. So, so 
to my mind, there are three pieces of very good news for anyone working in this area, including you. Uh, one, the liver cells were successful in taking up these nanoparticles and in converting a, l- a large percentage of the liver to, mm-hmm. the, to the knockout status. Yeah. Two, that worked in reducing the, uh, the unwanted production of RNA from, from that gene. And three, there were some studies showing that even, I guess these were in mice, if you cut back the liver when it regenerated, it regenerated with the changed, with the altered cells intact, which yeah. would suggest that there's maybe durability of these changes over time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Exactly right. And so all, all of this has come together. And, you know, the real excitement, uh, you know, very recently, just really just a few weeks ago, um, was Intelli's announcement, along with the publication of a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, that they had initiated a clinical trial. So I, the clinical trial is not even complete. So that's the most extraordinary thing about this. It's still ongoing because it wasn't near its planned completion. Uh, a phase one clinical trial, basically the first time or, you know, one of the first studies to actually put CRISPR into the body, in this case with lipid nanoparticles. And the study was planned with four groups, four groups of, you know, three patients each, each with this disease, transthyretin amyloidosis. And the first group would receive a very, very low dose of the drug, of the LNP. The next group would receive a higher dose, but still not very high. And then the third dose would receive yet another higher dose, even higher. And then, you know, the fourth group, potentially an even higher dose, right? And so this is a dose escalation study. This is very standard for uh, phase one clinical trials. You want to make sure, first and foremost, that the therapy is safe and well tolerated. So that's why you start with the lowest dose and then climb. If it looks good, if it starts showing toxic effects, then you're going to stop the trial, obviously. But if the first group tolerates the treatment well, then you go to the second group. And then, you know, if that looks like it was safe, the third group, and then you escalate the dose. You're not necessarily expecting to see that the treatment is effective. It's great if you do, but that's not a, you know, a defined expectation that 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 is the intent of a phase one clinical trial. Phase one clinical trials, first and foremost, about safety. And so Intelia and, you know, their partners at Regeneron, as well as the academic, uh, investigators, the clinicians whom they were working to actually dose the patients with the LNP drugs, you know, they weren't necessarily expecting to see much in the way of a reduction of the TTR protein in the bloodstream. That's what you hope will happen if you're getting good editing, but you're not expecting to see it at the lowest dose. But here's the kicker. At the very lowest dose of the drug, they saw something like a 50% reduction in the amount of TTR protein in the bloodstream. I have no doubt that that's much greater than they were expecting. It's certainly much greater than I was expecting. It's pretty much greater than the entire gene editing field medical profession, at least those who um, are following this story, um, were expecting to see. And then the second group had an average 87% reduction of the TTR protein. That's a near complete... And one of the patients in this group of three in the second group actually had a 96% reduction of trust. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that, that's, we'll, you know, we'll link on the website to the New England Journal of Medicine paper. Absolutely. Um, it is really, really interesting. You and know, that, Karen, stunning. I, I, stunning. I, stunning. Yes. And, and, and so I, I'm wondering, um, I feel like 
when we started with the Human Genome Project that this type of affecting many, many people changed. Now here I'm sort of shifting to talk more about VERV, although you've kind of convinced me that maybe amyloidosis is, is uh, less in the rare disease category than I had, I had, I had firmly put it there. It's like, okay, maybe it's more involved with common disease. Uh, but this treating of common diseases was yeah. definitively the goal of the Human Genome Project, and everyone understood that rare diseases that were closely associated with a single gene change would be the low-hanging fruit, the thing we would pick up first. But the idea was, was made explicit early on that we were going to be able to do something about common disease. And for the most part, we have not been able to do anything about common disease. Yeah. Um, and so this is a taking square aim at that. And I yeah. wonder, when you look at, at what, what Verb's doing, do you think that this is a, a sort of a, a one-off, uh, fortuitous target, or are we going to see targets like this in, I know now we're going outside of your realm, but in cancer and in diabetes and in other common diseases uh, that affect mankind and womankind and everybody else? Yeah. Humankind. Humankind, uh, sorry. Humankind, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you kind of you kind of put it the right way when you said low-hanging fruit. So genes like PCSK9 for heart disease, genes like TTR, which is involved in this in this disease amyloidosis, they're very attractive targets specifically because we know you can turn them off um, safely and get a good therapeutic effect. Now, that's probably not going to be the case. In most situations, um, in most situations, things are going to be more complicated. There's not going to be maybe a single gene you can turn off all the way. Maybe you have to turn down several genes. Or if there is maybe a single gene. Maybe there's more gene, of a trade-off. Yeah, there's more of a trade-off. Yeah, if the, even if there is a single gene, you, you really wouldn't be able to turn it off all the way because there would be negative consequences. Not all genes are dispensable in the way that PCSK9 or TTR. So it might be more, you have to be more fine-tuned. You have to turn down a gene partway, but not too much in order to get a good therapeutic effect. Um, or you might have to turn several genes off partway rather than all the way to get to get the full therapeutic effect. Um, now, there are going to be diseases, and you know, a very good example of this, we haven't really touched upon it today, but this is the other big success in gene editing over the last year or so, uh, a disease like sickle cell disease, um, where it's caused by a specific mutation in a gene, the hemoglobin gene, or one of the hemoglobin genes, um, that causes faulty protein to be made that, uh, um, you know, without getting into the mechanism, causes red blood cells to be abnormal and fragile and cause anemia and cause all sorts of complications and sickle cell disease, a terrible, terrible disease that unfortunately affects a very large number of people, you know, on the order of, you know, millions of people around the world. Um, and it's not so simple there. You can't just turn off that gene. Um, the, the hemoglobin gene, because you could do that and you could actually get rid of the sickle cell disease, but you'd be giving them a different disease that really is just as bad called beta thalassemia. Right. Um, and so you got to be aware of the negative consequences. And so in, in situations like that, you're, you're the best strategy, if you can pull it off, is to correct the disease mutation. Now, if that sounds like it's a much more subtle, a more precise and a more challenging thing to pull off, you're right. 
Now, fortunately, you can do this with gene editing. Now, it's it's harder to do with version 1.0 because that, you know the way we described it was you know like tearing a page and trying to paste it back up and hoping that some mistakes are made. Very crude mechanism. That's obviously not going to work if you're trying to subtly change one mutation, one letter, fix that letter, um, a typo, if you will, correct that typo. That, that's probably the best metaphor you can use here. Um, you can't use a scissors to, to correct a typo in, you know, on, in the page of a book. You're going to need something more precise. Now, fortunately, there's CRISPR version 2.0 basic editing where you can, you know, I really like your metaphor. I never thought of it before, but use whiteout to wipe out one letter um, and then, you know, write in the correct letter. You know, fix the typo that way. Uh, okay. There's a newer, even newer form of, of gene editing we haven't talked about called prime editing. You can think of that as CRISPR version 3.0. Uh, which is really more like a word processor um, where you can actually like delete letters, insert letters. You have a lot more versatility. Um, you know, it isn't nearly as developed as the other forms of gene editing, but it looks promising. And I think it will find its way to the clinic sooner or later. Um, so I, I think we're not too far from actually being able to correct disease mutations. Um, and what's exciting about that is you can now tackle a lot of diseases where it's not so simple as turning a gene off. Um, where you might need to do more subtle things, change specific letters, correct typos. Well, one, one thing that plays in here, in addition to the technical complications, so you're saying one is more complicated than the other, which it obviously is, uh, another and I think sort of equally sort of compelling story is that the rare disease treatments run into the non-technical problem of being very expensive and impossible to scale. Because while rare disease as a huge category is, is a very large problem, each disease itself yeah. is obviously affects a, a limited number of people. And then you something like sickle cell, you're talking about a lot of those people being from countries where there's no budget for this and so on. So there's huge issues of access around gene therapy. And I think yeah. that no discussion of gene therapy should ever happen without a discussion of the issues of access. So one of the things that's very intriguing about what you're doing with heart disease is that you're talking about a therapy that you could scale. Mm -hmm. And and in this case, you're not talking about adjusting people's own genes, right? There's no um, there's no there's no viral virus vector. So that's good. But there's also no you don't have to start with people's own genes um, and then put them back. Right. Uh, so it's not a personalized therapy like you could conceivably do this in an off-the-shelf manner. Yeah, although, you know, you bring up something very interesting. Um, and I know we're getting towards, you know, like a full hour. So, you know, this yes, is a nice place to, to close, um, which is sort of the forward-looking aspect of this. So some very unexpected things have happened over the last year uh, with this global pandemic, with COVID-19. And, and one of the very interesting, unexpected silver linings, I think, you know, when you're talking about scaling therapies, um, is that all of a sudden there is huge capacity to make LNP-based drugs and to make large amounts of messenger RNA. That didn't exist more than, you know, a year ago because there was no need for it. And the experiment, you know, it was experimental technology and there was a few small clinical trials being done. But because there was such a need for it in light of the pandemic, there is now enormous capacity to make LNP-based drugs. I mean, we've, 
the various companies that have been making mRNA vaccines have literally churned out hundreds of millions and soon billions of doses of these drugs. And that manufacturing capacity is not going to go away, right? Um, ah. It's there. And so this is this is actually, you know, again, you know, silver lining, you know, you know, count our lucky stars. In, in a sense, this scaling issue has already been dealt with because we have this technology that can be widely applied, not just to dealing with a global pandemic, but a whole variety of other applications, including gene editing to tackle diseases, common diseases like heart disease. Um, less common, but still, you know, pretty common diseases like amyloidosis. Mm-hmm. And, and the nature of gene editing technology is that if you want to target a different gene or target a different mutation, you don't actually have to tweak it very much. We've talked that, you know, or mentioned a few times the guide RNA, the GPS-like module. And the advantage of CRISPR is that it really is, in a, in a sense, almost as simple as typing something new into your GPS. Just change the sequence in the guide RNA. It's, it's 20 letters. Just change those 20 letters and you will redirect CRISPR to a different gene in the genome. And so if you think it's very intriguing because if you think about personalization, well, if someone comes into a clinic or a hospital and they have a, you know, their own, you know, very bad disease caused by a, their own unique mutation and no one else in this world has this mutation, we're not so far, I think, from a model where you can design a CRISPR configuration with the guide RNA that targets that mutation and can fix that mutation, even though it's unique and never been seen before. Almost like, you know, typing in something into a GPS. Um, That's what gene editing technology really promises. And I think we're going to see that unfold in the next five to 10 years for sure. Five to 10, really? Wow. I I think so with the newer forms of gene editing, like base editing, like prime editing, I think we're going, I mean, we're already starting to work on it in my academic laboratory, this sort of thing. And it won't, and it won't cost $2 million a patient. Yeah, because, because it's the components, right? So Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of this. If it, particularly if you're targeting something in the liver, that is essentially now with what Intelia has shown, a solved problem. We can deliver things to the liver. We can deliver gene editing tools. The liver joins the blood supply and the eye as exactly accessible organs of the body. Exactly. The yeah. LNP technology is there. We know how to get things in the liver. Messenger RNA technology is there. We know how to, how to get the gene editing tool into the liver via messenger RNA. Guide RNA technology is there. It's just a matter of changing letters, changing 20 <laughs> letters, and you can redirect. Kieran, I could literally talk to you all day. <laughs> And this is the most encouraging conversation I've had about the access issue of gene therapy in years. So I think I am going to end it there because I don't want to wreck it. I'm like, I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited. I don't, I don't want to ask the next yeah. question. Yeah, well, <laughs> if I can give you a closing thought. I, you know, I, I predict that in the next five to 10 years, we will start to see, and I don't know exactly where it will happen, whether it will be companies or on the academic side, more likely on the academic side because you're dealing with very rare or ultra rare diseases and unique mutations. We will start to see LNP therapies being made for individuals with very unusual diseases and maybe even unique mutations, building on the work that's being done at scale already by companies like Verve Therapeutics and Intelia Therapeutics for common disease. I think we're going to actually see that translate to ultra rare diseases, patients with N of one conditions, 
I, I think it's going to be possible, and I don't think it's going to be so far out of reach because the cost of producing these drugs over time is going to be dramatically lower as these drugs start to get deployed for common diseases and, and being made for, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people around the world. It's just it's going to lend itself very nicely to, to making bespoke therapies relatively well, expensively. For well, here you here you are, people. For one day, the Beagle has turned into the Good News Network. You know, the, the I'm here. I'm I'm here for you. I know it's been a long haul. I'm here to cheer everybody up. And uh, you can see why I love having Kieran on. Um, thank you all. Uh, go to the website, BeagleLanded.com. Subscribe. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher. Kieran, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.